Our sermon text for today is Genesis 46, 5, all the way to the end of chapter 47, another long passage of Scripture that we will be considering this morning. Um, We will skip over a portion of it in the reading, so please uh, pay attention and follow along. Uh, We are skipping over it not because it's unimportant, Uh, it is indeed an important passage, but in order to make the reading a little bit more brief, Uh, we will cover the content of that section in the sermon. Genesis 46, starting in verse 5. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Look down now to verse 26 of chapter 46. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. And he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. 47.1 So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen, and from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are one hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh 
and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute according to the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day, writes Moses, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were one hundred and forty-seven years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord add blessing to the preaching of it this morning. As I said in the introduction to the previous sermon, Genesis chapters 46 and 47, they belong together. Uh, together they tell the story of the third and final journey 
of the family of Joseph down into Egypt. Uh, This time it was not only a portion of the family that went, but all of Israel went. Jacob and every one of his offspring, they went down into Egypt. And this time the family would not return quickly, but they and their descendants would remain in Egypt for centuries, as you know. The narrative of Genesis has made it abundantly clear that this was the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord that the Hebrew people would grow into a great nation in Egypt. Of course, it is correct to say that all things that come to pass are the will of the Lord. We come to know what the hidden will of God is by observing the outworking of His eternal decree and the unfolding of human history. But here I am saying that Israel's going down into Egypt to grow into a great nation there was a part of God's revealed will. To Abraham, when he was still called Abram, God said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And so even to Abraham, this was predicted and prophesied that his descendants would go down into Egypt to remain there for a time and then be brought out again with great possessions. And to Jacob, God said, I am God, the God of your father, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. So Genesis chapters 46 and 47 describe to us the beginning of that period in the history of Israel, the the Egyptian period, we might call it. The passage that is before us today is very long. You notice that in the reading of it. And I would like to consider it in seven parts. First of all, let us recognize that when Jacob went down into Egypt, all Israel went with him. Uh, They were the complete nation of Israel in miniature, uh, ready to grow as God had ordained. And this is what is emphasized in verses 5 through 27 of chapter 46. I have said that Jacob took his family down into Egypt, which is true. He was the highly esteemed head of his clan. The family went to Egypt only with his approval. But in reality, we notice that his family carried him, uh, given his old age. I refrained from reading the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt in verses 8 through 25 of chapter 46. um, To save time and also to spare you the agony of listening to me butcher those names. Uh, But the thing to notice here is that the number which Moses gives to the clan is 70. Did you notice that? No, Moses says that 70 went down into Egypt. 66 sons are listed, but if one counts Jacob's daughter Dinah and also Joseph and his two sons who were already in Egypt, that brings the number to 70. Verse 26 says, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all, And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. As you can imagine, there are different ways to count this clan. The total number of people in Jacob's house who went down into Egypt was probably much larger than 70 if all of the wives and servants of Jacob and his sons were listed. But 70 is the number of Jacob's physical descendants who moved from Canaan to Egypt, including Joseph and his sons, who went down much earlier 
and under different circumstances. The number 70 is a number of completion. It communicates symbolically that all of Israel went down into Egypt. And it is also significant that in Genesis 10, we find a list of the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now you're going to have to remember this from a long time ago. We have been in the book of Genesis for some time now. But there in Genesis 10, we find a list of the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who were the sons of Noah. And there we learn that 70 sons were born to them after the flood, and that from those 70 sons, all of the nations of the earth descended. We call that list the table of nations. So here we have two lists of 70 in the book of Genesis. First of all, uh, the list of the sons of the sons of Noah, and then here a listing of the sons or the descendants of Jacob who went down into Egypt. The Hebrew people descended from Shem, from Eber, from Terah, from Abraham, from Isaac and Jacob. And when Jacob went down into Egypt, 70 of them, his descendants, are listed so that we might understand that a nation would come from them. Just as in Genesis 10, we find that table of nations, those 70 who descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Here we have another list of 70 the sons of or descendants of Jacob, communicating to us that here in this clan that sojourns down into Egypt, we have the nation of Israel in miniature. From this 70, the nation of Israel will grow. Furthermore, we see that the 70 of Jacob correspond to the 70 of the sons of Noah. Not only do they correspond, but they would in the fullness of time bring forth the remedy for the sins of all the peoples of the earth, Jesus the Christ, who is the Savior, not of the Hebrews only, but of the world. So this 70 that descended from Jacob would be the remedy for the 70 who descended from Noah, from which the earth was populated after the flood. Secondly, let us consider the reunion of Jacob and Joseph. And the account of this is found in verses 28 through 30. And I want for you to notice three things about this reunion. One, notice that Judah again takes the lead. He has become a prominent figure here in this latter portion of the book of Genesis. Verse 28, Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Judah's checkered past should be remembered. Among other things, he was the one who suggested that Joseph be sold into slavery all those years ago. But we should not forget the transformation that we have seen in him. He showed deep concern for his brother and his father when Joseph threatened to take Benjamin captive. He offered himself as a substitute for the boy. Do you remember all of this, brothers and sisters? And because of this, we have said that Judah was functioning as a type of the Christ who would descend from him. Remember that Jesus the Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And here in this scene, we see that Judah continues in the lead and he continues to function as a type of the Christ who would descend from him. He went before the others to prepare the way into the land of Goshen where the people of God would be saved from the famine which threatened them. Again, in this respect, he is also of the, a, a type of the Christ who would descend from him. Christ lived and died and rose again, the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
The New Testament refers to him as the first fruits in regard to the resurrection. He rose from the dead and he has ascended into the heavenly places in glory, leading the way for his brethren. This is why he spoke to his disciples in this way before his death. He said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And so I am saying that Judah, this figure who has come into prominence here in the latter portions of the book of Genesis. He is a type of Christ, and here he goes first down into Goshen to bring reconciliation between Jacob and and Joseph and to prepare a place for the rest of the people of God who follow. He functioned as the type of Christ who would descend from him. Two, notice Joseph's love for Jacob. Verse 29 Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Uh, This is a moving scene. Even as I read it, I heard you respond. Some of you at least respond to this scene. This is touching to think that for all of these years, uh, this father has been separated from his beloved son. And this son has been separated from the father that he loved so dearly. And what we see here is that underneath Joseph's faithful, resolute, and strong disposition was a tender heart. He loved his father. He missed him very much, having been separated from him for all of those years. Three, notice Jacob's relief. In verse 30, Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Jacob would not die for many more years, but now he was at peace regarding his son Joseph. Before, he said, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning, Genesis 37, 5. But now, he says, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. He was at peace in this moment, having received Joseph back from the dead as it were. And brothers and sisters, is it not our hope in the resurrection that also gives us peace as we sojourn in this world? Uh, This hope that we will see our God when we pass. This hope that we will also be reunited with those we love if they died in Christ Jesus. Here we see the hope of the resurrection on display. Thirdly, let us consider Joseph and his brothers as they stood before Pharaoh. Joseph, again, proves himself to be very wise. He ended up in the position that he had in Egypt because he was so wise. And here, he again proves himself to be very wise. His desire was that his family settled not only in Egypt generally, but particularly in this land that is called Goshen, which Moses later refers to as the land of Ramses. It was probably known as that in the days of Moses. And so, he uses that terminology later in the passage. The reasons for this were probably threefold. One, the land was good for grazing sheep, which was the occupation of the sons of Jacob. Two, the land was set off a bit from the population of Egypt, and this would have protected Israel from any sort of racial discrimination. We are even told in this passage that um, shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians, and so 
Joseph selects a land that is good for grazing sheep and that is also a bit rural so that Israel can flourish undisturbed. And three, the land was also near the border of Canaan, which would have allowed Israel to more easily return at the appointed time. Certainly Joseph knew that this was God's will for Israel, that they spend a time in Egypt, but that they would eventually return to Canaan, to that land of promise. Those promises were not made null and void by the famine which threatened them, but they still stood. And so Joseph's desire was that his family settle in Goshen. And he was wise to first settle his family there, and then to go to Pharaoh saying, My family has come, they are shepherds, and they are already in Goshen. Pharaoh simply recognized and approved Joseph's decision, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And even better, Pharaoh said, If you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. If there is anyone who is particularly gifted as a shepherd, give them a job in my administration." The brothers were offered positions in the service of Pharaoh. At least some of them might have been. Fourthly, let us consider that Jacob blessed Pharaoh once he was brought before him. And I think this is very significant. For the greater blesses the lesser. Uh, that is how this works. The one who is greater pronounces a blessing upon the one who is lesser. And yet here in this passage we see that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And he blessed him not once, but twice. After the rather cold and formal interaction between Pharaoh and the brothers of Joseph, the tone changes to one of warmth as Joseph presents his father to Pharaoh. In verse 7 of chapter 47, we learn that Jacob blessed Pharaoh the moment that he saw him. Certainly we are to remember the promise that God made to Abraham, saying, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so here we see a little fulfillment to that promise. Pharaoh blessed Israel on account of Joseph, giving them refuge there in the land of Egypt, and then here Israel pronounced a blessing upon the Pharaoh. And brothers and sisters, we should never forget that this was Israel's purpose from the start, to be a blessing to the nations. God set Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob apart and promised to make a great nation of them so that they might be a blessing to the nations. This theme has permeated the Genesis narrative so far, and this theme will continue throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. Indeed, the prophets of God will make much of this, preaching to Israel, saying, in essence, don't you understand that God has blessed you, not for the sake of blessing you, but so that through you, the nations might be blessed, so that through you the nations might also be reconciled to God through the Christ who will come from you. That is, of course, my summary of the message that many of them preached. And so we see that this was God's purpose for Israel from the beginning, that the nations be blessed by them. And so here we see it happening in miniature. Here we see a little example of that when Jacob pronounces a blessing upon the Pharaoh of Egypt. Who would have thought 
that Joseph and Jacob would ever stand before the Pharaoh. Who are they? Uh, they were but one small people, one small clan, just individuals, just a speck amongst the multitude of humanity that surrounded Egypt and lived within it. And yet here they are standing before Pharaoh because it was the will of God. Ultimately, the blessing that is to come through Israel is that the nations would be reconciled to God through the Christ who would come into the world through them. But again, when Jacob stood before Pharaoh and blessed him, it is to remind us of this purpose for Israel's existence. They were blessed to be a blessing. Notice the respect and warmth in Pharaoh's reply. Verse 8, Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? Maybe I'm reading too much into the text here, but I I hear a very respectful and warm tone to, to Pharaoh's voice here. How many are the days of the years of your life, he says to Jacob. Jacob was an old man, but yet age was something that was honored in Egypt, even by the Pharaoh, who was probably quite young. In the ancient world and in many other cultures around the world to this day, age is honored. In our culture, it is often considered to be rude to ask an elderly person about their age. Have you noticed that? It's not a question that you are supposed to ask in our culture. But I think this only shows how foolish and vain we are. In our culture, we celebrate youthfulness and celebrity, but I I say, for what? Why do we celebrate this? Should we not honor those who possess true wisdom? Should we not honor those with life experience? And surely the church in America is to be countercultural in this regard. Honor should be shown to those who are of age. Young and old should pursue maturity and wisdom all the days of their life. By the way, just because someone is old does not mean that they are wise. The two things do not always go together, sadly, but often they do. Young and old should pursue maturity all the days of their life. And those advanced in years should not neglect the responsibility that they have to be an example to the young. Remember how Paul wrote to Titus, saying, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so those who are of age in the congregation, in the Christian church, have a particular responsibility. They should not look down upon their age, but see that they have a particular responsibility to lead by example within the church of God and within the culture in general. And those who are young should not fail to appreciate the wisdom of those who are older, who have gained it through life experience. The commandment of God, honor your father and mother, applies more than just to children and their parents. It establishes this principle that those who are young are to honor those who are older than them, and those who are under authority are to honor those who have authority over them. Uh, That is the principle that is established there in the commandments of God. 
Here in Genesis 47, we learn that Jacob blessed Pharaoh twice, once at the beginning of their interaction and again at the end. And this is one of those instances where things are not as they appear. According to the appearance of things, Pharaoh was much greater and much more significant than Jacob. Pharaoh was the supreme ruler of a great and mighty nation. This nation was used by the Lord to preserve many through this time of famine. Pharaoh's wealth and power was tremendous. Undoubtedly, he stood there before Jacob, arrayed in glory. And yet Jacob must have appeared very humble. He must have looked very frail and very poor by comparison. He and his family are frantically searching for food to eat. That was their condition. And yet we know that it was Jacob who was the more significant person. He was chosen of the Lord. Through him and through his offspring, the Christ would come into the world. Through him and through his offspring, the kingdom of God would be established. And so it is with God's kingdom, wherever it is, and as it advances in the world, it always seems to be weak and poor and frail when compared to the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God in this world, as it exists um, before the consummation of all things, always looks rather unimpressive when set side by side against the kingdoms of this earth. But in fact, the kingdom of God is greater. We have to remember that things are not always as they appear, brothers and sisters. But here in this moment, truly, the greater blessed the lesser when Jacob pronounced this blessing twice over upon Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It was right that Jacob blessed Pharaoh, for this was the will of the Lord for the Hebrews, that through them the nations of the earth would be blessed. And I might ask you, brothers and sisters, are we not to do the same as the Israel of God in this new covenant era? Are we not also to pray for and to bless those who rule over us, even if they be ungodly and unbelieving? Paul wrote to Timothy, saying, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Here we have this reminder to pray for those who rule over us, even if they be ungodly. Israel came under the authority of Egypt when he brought his family to sojourn in that land. And what did he do almost the moment he got there except bless the Pharaoh? Brothers and sisters, we are to be faithful to pray for those who rule over us. Fifthly, let us consider that Israel settled in Egypt in the land of Goshen, or in the land of Ramses, as Moses calls it later. This is reported in 47, 11, and 12. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. See this, that although Israel was hard-pressed on every side by the severe famine, the Lord provided for them. He gave Israel not just some land, but He gave them, in fact, the best of the land. The best of the land of Egypt was provided for them along with their daily bread. 
And the people of God should take encouragement from this. For here we see the faithfulness of the Lord shown to His people. He promised to go with Jacob down into Egypt and to preserve him and to bring him back again. And we should not be surprised that the Lord also richly provided for Israel while in Egypt. He gave them the best of the land and a regular provision of food. And this is why Christ taught His disciples to pray, Give us this day our daily bread. He taught us to pray that way, knowing that the Father would be faithful to answer that prayer to provide for them. And the writer to the Hebrews also exhorts us in this way, saying, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So, what, so we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so as we consider that Israel was settled in the best of the land of Egypt and given daily provisions, we are, we are reminded of the faithfulness of our God to care for His people. Sixthly, let us consider that Egypt and Canaan endured years of famine. In verse 13 we read, Now there was no food in all the land. The famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. You and I do not know what it is like to endure famine. Maybe there are some exceptions in the room, but I doubt it very much. I doubt that many even consider it a possibility in our modern, globalized, and technologically advanced society. Does anyone lose sleep at night worrying about whether or not a famine is about to strike us? I don't know. Maybe some of you who are prone to worry do. I don't think about it. The grocery stores were well stocked throughout the years of the drought that we endured here in Southern California. We endured years of drought, did we not? And yet I went to the grocery store and it was full of produce. Though we longed to be refreshed by rain in those days, no one suffered a lack of food or water even on account of the drought. But Egypt and Canaan languished during those years. Were it not for God revealing to Joseph that the famine was coming and giving him the wisdom to prepare for it, many would have perished. And here we see God's common grace put on display. Though they languished, many were mercy was shown to the people of the land through Joseph's relief plan. Verses 14 through 26 describe to us the progression of things in Egypt. First, the Egyptians purchased grain from Pharaoh with money. In fact, all the people of the land, even surrounding Egypt, did this. They purchased grain from Pharaoh with money. After the money was gone, they sold their livestock to Pharaoh. And after their livestock was gone, they sold their land and even themselves into the service of Pharaoh. Those of us who are in favor of limited government and low taxation recoil a bit when we hear about this economic policy implemented by Joseph. But it is really difficult to see what else could have been done given the dire circumstances. What we see here is that evidently Joseph refused to simply hand out grain to the Egyptians or to those who came into the land for relief. The grain had to be purchased at every stage, which is certainly right. But the end result was that all of the people of Egypt, with the exception of the priests, were made servants of Pharaoh. From the days of Joseph, even to the days of Moses, the people of Egypt gave the Pharaoh a fifth. In general, the people of Egypt were grateful, though, saying, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. 
This does not mean that there weren't some who grumbled at the economic policy of Joseph and Pharaoh. But in general, the people recognized that through this plan and through this intervention, uh, their lives had been saved. I think it is interesting to notice that when you read the law of Moses, and when you read the laws that were imposed upon Israel as a nation, which will come sometime after this, historically speaking, uh, the same principles are applied to individuals who find themselves in economic hardship. Uh, The end of the road for those who are finding themselves in difficult times economically is that they sell even themselves into servitude, that they become slaves, as it were, not the kind of slavery that we experienced here in our nation all those years ago, a different kind, an economic kind. They sold themselves into slavery for a time. The difference between the law of Israel and the law of Egypt, though, was this, that every 50 years, Israel was to celebrate a year of what? Jubilee where freedom was granted and lands were returned to original owners, you see. And so we see that, yes, there is wisdom here in the plan of Joseph that was enacted, even though we might not understand it fully or agree with it in our modern times, in our American context. But nevertheless, there was wisdom here. Economics still functioned in those days. But here in Israel, we see the mercy of the Lord put on display in the year of Jubilee. Whether or not it was faithfully enacted is another story, but nevertheless, the law of Moses did command it. Seventhly and lastly, let us consider that Israel was blessed in Egypt. Israel was blessed in Egypt. In verse 27, we read, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And so we see this contrast here. While the people of Egypt and Canaan languished, when they lost their land and even their freedom, Israel flourished. They were fruitful. They multiplied greatly. And why was this? Except that the Lord was with them to bless them, even as they sojourned in Egypt while enduring the famine. Though Israel was blessed in Egypt, we see that Jacob's heart was still in the land of promise. He knew that he was a sojourner in this place, and this was not to be his home forever. Verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and make this vow. That is how they did it in those days. And promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place, that is, back in the land of Canaan. And Joseph answered, saying, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Israel longed to be in Canaan. He knew that that is where his people would one day return, according to the promises of God. Surely he didn't understand how that would come about, but he knew that God would do it. His heart was still in the land of Canaan. If there is one big picture piece of application to draw from this story, it must be that God is faithful to bless his people while they sojourn in foreign lands. And I think this is particularly important for the people of God living in the New Covenant era to know. For we are all sojourners, living in foreign lands, spiritually speaking. 
In other words, there is no particular piece of land that belongs to the people of God under the new covenant. But we are all sojourners who long to see the new heavens and new earth. That is what we are waiting for. And this is what Peter said when he wrote to the people of God under the new covenant. He said, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Notice that he did not say we are waiting to go back to some piece of land on earth some sliver of land, but rather we are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And it was also Peter who said, Beloved, I urge you, speaking to Christians, as sojourners and exiles, this is how he spoke to them, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." Brothers and sisters, many find their security in their nation. They find their security in their land and in their home. But the Christian sojourner runs to God and to the Christ He has sent for security. Our refuge truly is in Him. He is our comfort and He is our peace. Let us conclude with Hebrews 13.20, which says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for this history that we find contained within the pages of Holy Scripture. For when we read this history, this divinely inspired history, uh, we are reminded of your faithfulness to your people and your faithfulness to keep your promises. We are reminded that you are the God who provides. God, may we never forget it. And may we apply this truth that is here put so beautifully on display to our own lives and to our own circumstances. Father, I do pray especially for those who feel as if they are in a time of famine, who feel as if they are on the run and without stability, earthly speaking, that they would know that you are with them, Lord. If they are in Christ Jesus, I pray that you would bring them this comfort, that they would know that you are with them, And have promised to give them each day their daily bread. So Father, help us, in particular, during times of uncertainty, to look to You and to find true peace. To trust in You sincerely and from the heart. Lord, strengthen our faith so that this might be true of us, Lord. And help us, Lord, to love one another in Christ Jesus. It's in His name that we pray and all of God's people say.